Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. I was a little kid and, and there was a street performer there and he was a mime. I just stood in front of him and just like watched him for like 20 minutes. And he's performing directly for me because there was really nobody else around him. He made me laugh. He made me sad. He almost made me cry. As a kid, I was like, man, this is a superpower. Like, how does he do that? And I was like, wow, I went through just an array of emotions. It was actually better than a sports hero ducking a basketball or a baseball. Because I was like, there's such a interesting connection that we all of a sudden have with no words, right? The idea of being some type of entertainer was like stuck there, right? Hi, I'm Sung King, and I'm a modern minority. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is the show about work and life, told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Raman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow, but we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you, for all of us. On today's show, we're talking to Sung Kang. Sung's an American filmmaker, best known for his role as Han in the Fast and Furious franchise, which was a character he first portrayed in one of the seminal Asian-American films, Better Luck Tomorrow. Sung's someone I've actually known off and on for the past couple of years, uh, dabbling in the podcast world. And it was really exciting to get reconnected with him through our mutual friend of the pod, Brian. And Sung's actually here to talk about his latest work. He's got two really significant projects that are dropping at the same time this week. A new podcast with iHeartMedia, Car Stories, and a new independent film, Shaky Shivers. Now, it's worth noting, we're in the middle of a writers and actor strike. And this film, Shaky Shivers, because it's an independent release, has been kind of granted an exception. And when we actually talk about a lot of things beyond just the film, and this film, Shaky Shivers, is Sung's directorial debut. And oh, it's almost a love letter to the films that so many of us grew up on, those kind of campy horror VHS films. You can find out a showtime where you can see it again, one night only, this Thursday, September 21st, Shaky Shivers on FathomEvents.com. Now, the other project Sung was here to talk about was something I got to work with him on a couple of years ago that's finally coming to light. And it is podcast car stories. It's relaunching from his previous podcast, but in an area that Sung's always been passionate about, cars, but kind of the human elements to all of our personal car stories, not just being a gearhead, but truly being an observer of human culture. And that also comes out this Thursday, September 21st, wherever you get your favorite podcast. So it was really exciting to talk to someone I've admired for the past couple of years. Sharon, I mean, you've heard about Sung yeah, for a while. Yeah. What do you think? I've heard about him. I've seen him on the screen. He's like things that legends are made of, basically. and I loved our chat because it gave so much context into these two upcoming projects. Like he, he told us stories about what it was like growing up and then wove in experiences that he had that then totally line up with Shaky Shivers and how it's basically an ode to old movies, right? And he's always been 
always been a movie lover in that way. And he's always also been a car lover. And both of those were like things that got him through. Like right. Difficult moments of his life. Right. Exactly. And, and also places where I think he found purpose and meaning. You know, I think that was kind of a deeper thing that I heard from him as we were chatting. Those were, those are two areas that where he really kind of found some solace, but where he, where he felt like he always belonged. It was great to talk to him. I'm really excited about this Thursday being such a big day for him because I feel like this is really the next chapter for what what we'll see of him going forward. Yeah. So definitely on Thursday, September 21st, be sure to check out Car Stories, wherever you get your favorite podcast, but Shaky Shivers, it's in theaters one day only. And this is a long one, but we hope you really enjoy our chat with our old new friend, Sung Kang. Sung, this is a long time coming. Welcome to the show. Thanks for joining. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. So Sung, I think by now people kind of know who you are, little things you do here and there. But I mean, I guess what everyone wants to know is, uh, I don't know, man, where are you from? I'm from Georgia. Uh, I grew up in Georgia. I grew up in Atlanta, partially, and ended up in Gainesville, Georgia. Gainesville is, uh, well, at least when I was growing up, was the poultry capital of America. So we <laughs> don't really have much to talk about except for that we were the center of all poultry that came, you know, that went to America. So I had no idea. Why is that? Is something headquartered there? Is like Purdue headquartered there or something? Uh, a lot of the chicken factories or the, the chicken companies, the poultry companies were based out of there. And I think just, you know, cheap land. Yeah. And so a lot of the factories were there and uh, most of the jobs came through the poultry factories. And uh, we grew up doing barters with people that worked at the factory. My parents had a convenience store there and the guys that, you know, were waiting for their paychecks, if they didn't have money and they needed something from the store, they'd bring a turkey or some. Really? To barter? Yeah. That's very cool. To barter. Huh. Yeah. And then they would get some bread and, you know, a pint of something. And my mom would bring home a whole bunch of turkeys and chicken. <laughs> so, <laughs> I grew up eating a bunch of poultry, right? Like, and, like literally, like instead of bringing home the bacon, bringing home the chicken. <laughs> and literally, yeah. Yeah. We, we, you, you know, you have that uh, like separate freezer in the in the in the garage that kind of lifts yeah. up like this right yeah, yeah 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 it was just it was always filled with poultry yeah so from Gainesville you know small little town that you mm-hmm. know I don't know if you ever saw that movie Stand By Me but it was kind of that childhood like you know, I would go into the woods and play pretend and go fishing mm-hmm. there's Lake, Lake Lanier up there and you know it was it was a really pleasant way to grow up there were no gangs and no drug problems. You know, we definitely didn't have homeless at that time. Uh, How big of a town was Gainesville? Like, just kind of—is it like a company town for the poultry industry, or like? Yeah, a real, really small town. I can't remember the exact numbers when I was growing up, but you know, really podunk town. You know, there's yeah, you know, we we. I think now there's like WalMarts and you know, mm-hmm. right chain stores, but back then, you know, there was. I think there, I think there was a Win Dixie. Win Dixie is like the Ralphs. The beef people. The beef people. Yeah, yeah. 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 So when you were growing up, did anyone ever ask you, where are you really from? Oh, yeah, all the time. And they would say, you know, where are you from? I go, well, I'm from here. And they go, where, where are you really from? And right. go, I'm, I'm really from here. 
<laughs> and, but but I knew what they were they were asking, and it, yeah, we all know. Yeah. We all know. Yeah. Yeah. And then you know, in the seventies and eighties, it didn't matter if I said, "Yeah, I guess I'm from Korea." Mm-hmm. You know, most of the people had no idea what Korea was, unless right, you know, their their parents or grandparents fought in the Korean War, but the kids had no idea what Korea was, and they're like, "Is that someplace in China where, and how close is it from where Bruce Lee's from?" Right, and, <laughs> and so. Being Korean, you might as well say that you were from China or Japan. It didn't matter. Yeah. Right. right. I, I got to ask, like, when did you leave Georgia? Like, how old were you when you when you made your way, I guess, west? Or did you go elsewhere after you left? Well, so we had that, my parents had that convenience store. So my, my stepfather retired from the military and then they opened this convenience store there. Um, it was a package store. So in Georgia... Hmm. Like you, you can't say like liquor store. You have to say package store. You can't put like signage that says liquor. I think because it's the Bible Belt, they just did yeah, not. Yeah, right. Not closed on Sundays. Yeah, yeah, definitely closed on Sundays. And he was so unhappy because it was my mom's idea of the American dream to go and make money. And the only way she understood how to make money was you know, lack of education and, you know, not being able to speak English fluently. She just emulated her, her sisters and brothers that had businesses. And most of the businesses were liquor stores or convenience stores, or one of them had a, a butcher shop. So there were these like small businesses. And she looked at that and said, you know, even if they're making a couple of hundred thousand dollars a year, it's way more than somebody from the military, right? And so, sure. yeah. So, you know, she was always dabbling in and trying to open businesses up. And then when my dad retired from the military, he was in the army for like 26 years. She convinced him to, you know, open the store and he hated it. You know, for him, his idea of the American dream is not existing in a convenience store and right. punting off like pints of liquor and selling loaves of bread. And he started, his health and his psyche was, it was, it was really bad. And, and so he started applying for jobs and then he got a job in Barstow, Barstow, California, which is, there's a couple of military bases out there. There's an army base and it's where all like, there's basic training out there, train, you know, people how to drive tanks. And then there's a Marine base and Barstow is on the way to Vegas. It's a little desert town. It's not a podunk town. Nothing. It's for the reason we always ended up in these little small podunk towns. Right. And yeah. I think like the end of my freshman year, we ended up there. And I first went with my dad. And just as I was like making friends and feeling like, you know, I belonged in Gainesville, all of a sudden, like, uprooted and we're in Barstow and I hated it. I literally mm. hated this little desert town. And again, there were no minorities there. I mean, there, right. was, there were Hispanics, of course, but there were maybe, I think, one, two, three, four Asian families there, you know. And were there more Asians in Gainesville than in Barstow? No, 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 okay. no. Gainesville, okay. Gainesville had, from my recollection, had like two in our school. There was a um, uh, there was you. Yeah, there was, or there was, so, so a total of three. Right, right. Um, there was Paul Lim. He was my best friend. Wow. He, his, his parents owned Bamboo Gardens, which at that time was 
I think the only Chinese restaurant in town. Right. And it's where yeah. you dressed up. Like it, it was like a fancy place where yep. Yep. you dressed up and they had entertainment and like Jimmy Carter would come and dine there. Really? That's cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then there was a a Vietnamese guy that I think his parents owned the dry cleaner or something like that, but he didn't speak English. So he, mm-hmm. he like, we, we couldn't really be friends. And he was... You know, very Vietnamese, and he can, you know, he, he, I think he felt like he really didn't belong. But I do remember he had some bling. He was like the first like Asian dude I ever remember that had bling. Like he had all this like gold chains. Yeah, 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 yeah but but yeah. It, it was like that dark gold. It was right, like, you know, right. American like twenty four carat, like the yellow, yeah, yellow yeah. gold. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Like super yellow, had like you know a little Buddha emblem on it or something like that, like medallion. And I was like, this kid is like. Bolivian, right? He's owning it. He's owning it, right? Yeah, yeah. But we couldn't communicate. So he didn't play sports. And, mm. you know, Paul and I were very, very American, you know, so we did everything like other Georgians did. You know, we fished, we went in the woods, we had BB guns. And every day we would go to the video store, you know, and play arcade games. There was like yeah. two arcade games there, like Pac-Man. Well, yeah, what were, what were your two games? Pac-Man and? There was Pac-Man and then... There was Galaga, Pac-Man, but then I think the Pac-Man broke and then they replaced it with uh, Street Fighter. I think that was the game. It was like oh, two, yeah. two, two yeah. sticks. Yeah. Like I, I became like the master of that game. And I would just wait on the weekends and during the summers for people to come in and challenge me. And so. <laughs> you were that kid. I, you know, I genuinely think. Here's how we solve our societal problems. We got to put arcades back in because that's where you bump up against people that don't look like you. You know, it's just like we all play video games at home with people we already know, you know. I know. I mean, and I, the arcades that, you know, when I was growing up were just a big part of like, you know, my maturity and my development. Yeah. And, you know, that's where you uh-huh, uh-huh. learn about like romance. You know, it's like, you know, you go on date. Yeah. Together, you know, you understand the points. I've of- definitely been, I've definitely been the video game girlfriend, you know, like. Is like my job to just stand next to whoever was playing Street Fighter. Oh, yeah, hold the tokens or the quarters, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. No, in, the, in the modern arcades, I want my daughter kicking everyone <laughs> yeah. else's ass at Street Fighter. Okay, so. she's gonna be the one kicking everyone else's ass. Exactly, exactly. No, the boy can the boy can hold her coat. <laughs> yeah, but I wonder if arcades will be able to work today because parents are so protective. Seems like. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but when I was growing up. I just had to be home by dark, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, right. there's no f- right. phone call. I never called home to just like be home by dark or you're dead. Right. And, um, yeah, but today, you know, there's like play dates and all, you know, and there's all these. Yeah. It's, it's a lot more manicured. You don't drop your kid off. Like for us, the arcade was in the mall, you know, and someone's one of the parents, it, you'd go with a friend, right? Like my buddy Raj, one of our parents would drop us at the mall and then you make the circuit. You go to Taco Bell so you can have your cup for the, it's the movie Mall Rats, right? You go check out the music store, you go check out the clothing store, Spencer's Gifts, but you always landed at the arcade because it was near the entrance. And you probably spent an hour and a half of the three-hour mall trip where your parents dropped you off at the arcade. Yeah. I never had a girl holding my coat at the arcade, to be clear. It also sounds like you never cut school just to hang out at the arcade, though, Roman. I I went to like math and science Like you had parents, you had parents dropping you off. I'm thinking, I'm like, I'm like, yeah, I mean, I wasn't cutting school all the time. Sharon used to shoplift. She was a little bit of a Chinatown rebel, let's be clear. But yeah, yeah, like we would, I mean, my friends would just like, they'd just be at the arcade all day. 
And I lived in Chinatown. Well, this was in the city. You could walk, right? And like, you could walk. Could you walk all the places, Sung, in in um Georgia? Well, not Georgia, but once you moved out west, like were these yeah, were these places you could walk around or did you have a car by this point? No, I didn't I, I had no car. I didn't even have a bicycle. Like I, I walked, right? And hmm. at in Barstow there was one mall. There was an arcade in Barstow. Hmm. No, there's not no such thing. I mean mm-hmm. there was a mall and I think there was like a Sears in it. Okay. So there was really in a mall you could walk. You could walk in like five minutes. It, I wouldn't say it was really a mall. It was like a you know, bloated strip mall, I guess. Right, right. Nothing exciting in that place. So I didn't really hang out at the mall in Barstow. Like you know, I'd go there, you know, go to the shoe store, look at some shoes that I can't afford. And then I would actually hang out at the movie theater. I would walk to the movie theater. It took about like, yeah. you know, 25 minutes. And because when I landed there, I, I had no friends and. You know, everybody kind of looked at me. It's like, you know, what are you doing in this town, right? And yeah, and so I, I hung out at the movie theater like seven days a week. You know, and and I would get a ticket for the matinee. Mm. I would write down all the times of the movies, and I would just like start hopping around. And I would, I remember if there was like a gap, like a twenty minute gap from the next movie. Yeah, sure that I didn't get caught, which I think they knew that I was like hopping around. They didn't, these kids didn't care, and I, I would go into the toilet and just like, like sit there and like hide <laughs> in the toilet, you know, in there <laughs> until the next movie started. Yeah, yeah. I had my little, you know, Casio. I go, okay, it's time to go. Think <laughs> in because there were no assigned seats back then. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So right. Yeah. What are some of the films from that era, like the ones that either you went and. When you were sneaking in, because I remember when I would do that, I would movie hop. I'd only do two or three. If it was a movie I loved, I'd go back over and over for my second and third bonus movie. You know, like what were some of those early ones that just kind of blew you away or you kept going back to see? I don't remember. There's not a single movie that stuck out at that time. Mm -hmm. So I was freshman. So that would be 87, right? 86, 87. Maybe, I'm, I'm not sure if I saw like Nightmare on Elm Street in the mm-hmm. theater, but, you know, most of my filmography that really impacted me were all came from VHS, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I, I don't, I don't remember. Maybe I saw like the first Terminator or something like that, you know? Um, but yeah, I don't recall. There was in a movie from that theater where I was like, you know, I got to keep like going back or I actually don't remember. I just remember that I was just super lonely. Mm-hmm. And I remember that time. So like, as a kid, especially you know, when you're a freshman, like you need friends, like you have to like at least have one. And in Gangsville, I had Paul. He was essentially my only friend, right? And I did have a like a neighbor that would like hang out with me after school. You know, he wouldn't be seen with me at school, but then after school, like we would go play basketball and stuff like together. And you know, he'd sleep over and I'd sleep over at his house. But at school, there was like a you know, a rule that you can't be seen with me because I'm like the, you know, mm-hmm. the Oriental guy, right? Right. So Paul, I, I just needed one partner in crime. And, you know, he was essentially like the quintessential model minority. He was like yeah, straight A student. He was going to be valedictorian. You know, he looked like like a frumpy Asian dude. Like mm-hmm. he, didn't, he didn't play sports and stuff. And, you know, he would get picked on all the time where I was totally different, where I, my life was all about sports. And if you like pushed me or said something, I'd sock you, right? That was just, mm-hmm. you know, so I was suspended all the time. And, you know, I was kind of Paul's like guardian, if you will. And then when I got to Barstow, 
I was actually trying to go back to Gainesville. Like Paul and I, because I was his only friend and he was my only friend. I was like, hey, Paul, like, how do we stay together? Because I cannot exist without you, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and vice versa. It's a complimentary relationship, right? Yeah, yeah. And so we, he was like, how about we go to like military school together? There's like, there was a military wow. school near Gainesville called Riverside Military Academy. Like, well, if we both go, then we can like be roommates and, you know, it could be like that movie Taps. I don't know if you ever saw Taps, right? So I was like, <laughs> yeah. we, could, we could, we could like forever be best friends, right? And uh, it was like an entry exam to get into that. And he passed and I failed. So that didn't work out, right? And so I had to go to Barstow with my dad. And so the, the memories of that, that movie theater is, it was, it's such a dark time in my life. I don't think since that time I've ever been so lonely. And I felt like I was dying, you know, and I started getting all this weight because there's nothing to do. Like there were no sports programs, like in the middle of the desert. And in Georgia, you could get on your bike and yeah. go in the woods. And, you know, you could just like, yeah. And if you have one buddy, you're doing something every day, all day together, right? Yeah. And I just remembered, I mean, I think it was the first time, you know, as a young person, like I thought about like, I I think I'm better off dead. Like I I can't exist like this. Like I just cannot, right? So I think that's why I kept escaping to like movies too, going, you know, at least I have this and I could just like disappear and that be sad for a couple hours or hour and a half. And, mm-hmm. um, and eventually, you know, I did find my tribe there. You know, I've, yeah. I found, you know, another best friend there. It's, it, it was, it's interesting because I was, when I talked to like my niece and nephews today and children of my friends, I go, do you, you have like a best friend? And it seems like it's more rare today to have your best pal. And maybe it's because, you can go online and make a whole bunch of friends, but you know, having like a best friend was like, it was really important to me. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, I need, yeah. I just, and I just needed one. I just created. <laughs> well, I think we were a lot more, we were a lot more isolated back then, not just based on where we lived, but the technology didn't exist, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And usually there was a geographic thing with that best friend. So your neighbor, the kid whose house you could ride to, the person who could come over and have dinner at your house or go sneak out of school with, right? Yeah. That doesn't exist as much today, I don't think. Yeah, it's kind of sad. Kids don't have that today, you know? Yeah. What'd you want to be when you grew up? I mean, either in Gainesville or in Barstow. Like, what what was the future? What was the future you thought about back then? Well, when I was in Georgia, it was all baseball. Everything centered around baseball. Mm -hmm. It's all I cared about. I slept with my club. And, And I knew as a kid, like, because I was invisible, Mm-hmm. there's that term like second class citizen. I didn't feel like I was second class. I felt like, you know, I was like third class, like literally just invisible. I did not exist. And I knew as a kid, like, I didn't want, I don't want to go out like this. Like I cannot go out like this. There's a, there has to be some bigger purpose for my existence here. Like, how do I leave my voice? How do I, and make my mark somewhere? And, you know, people are able to smell my scent, cool, you know, like, how do I leave that? And I was like, all right, I have to do some sport that is not subjective, right? Like, it's just like, okay, if I could throw the ball, you know, and like just Mm. throw the ball the fastest and strike people out, then they, you know, my color doesn't get in the way. But 
I remember as a kid, I was that kid. And I don't know if, you know, if you have kids and they play sports, but I was that kid. If we lost the game, I would start crying. Yeah. Like I would have a full on tantrum by myself, like in the corner yeah. and just like break down and just start crying because it felt like this is all I had. Like I mm. have to be the best. And nobody understood that. Like yeah. you know, the other parents and the coaches, they're like, you know, son, every time you lose game, like, you know, it's not your fault. Like, but you'd like literally start crying and breaking down and I'm like screaming and not at anybody, but I'm like screaming by myself and screaming at myself. And I remember the coach, literally, he was like, he looked at me and he was like trying to, I thought it was coming to console me. And he's like, son, you know, just to have fun. You know, I was like, coach, I got to be a pro player. And he said something in the like of like, you know, there are no Orioles in the league, so I'm just have fun. And then it occurred to me, I was like, hey, coach is actually right. There are no Orientals or Asians in, you know, the major leagues at that time. Right. Right. And as a, I think, young person, you have to see yourself there. Mm -hmm. You have to see someone that looks like you on the field or on the screen, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Or on the cover of a book, right? You have to like, because it, it validates like, oh, you're not crazy. And there's actually a course, right? There is there is a path to that dream. right? And there were none, right? You know, there yeah. were no Chano Parks, right? At that right. time, you know, there were no Jeremy Lins in, in basketball. So I was like, this they ain't going to work then. Like, what's the point? So I remember I, it just, I just gave up. Like I never touched that glove again, you know, I mm. stopped throwing the baseball. And that's where the movies came in because I was like, well, then how do I leave a mark? You know, and you know, all of my relatives, they were on literally like the pragmatic path of being a CPA or a doctor. We would get we would get questioned by like my oldest uncle going, what do you want to do when you grow up? Right. And everyone had like almost the same answer. It's like, I'm going to be a doctor. Doctor, lawyer, engineer, accountant. Yeah. 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 Something with a business card. Right. And then I would say stuff like, I think I want to be a mime. Right. And then go, this kid. (laughs) What is is wrong with this dude? Right. Their face just be like, what? You're going to be a mime? I remember, I remember the whole uncle. My oldest uncle told my mom and made her cry one like Korean New Year's. It was like, hey, I think your son might like go to jail because this kid is like out of control, right? Like, what, what if he wants to be a what? A mine? What? What is that? Like, you need to get a hold of this kid, right? I got to ask though. So the whole, the baseball story from earlier, you were told there, there weren't any Orientals in baseball. I don't remember any Orientals in mime. <laughs> like, who, where is this coming from? That's what I, I mean, I'm genuinely curious. Like, where did mime come from? And part of it is because my daughter wants to be a mime for Halloween and I don't know. She does? Anyway, but. Oh, I love that. Where Where did this idea come? That, that's the, the crux of it. Because is that what's leading to acting? But again, who were you seeing that was like, this is something I could do. This is something I, I see the path or the journey to. During my childhood, they, I think PBS or whatever channel Sesame Street was on. Yeah. Like Mar- Marceau, Marceau. That's like right. Peri- yeah, would periodically be on. Like black yes. and, there was like black and white stuff. And it was always connected to like Electric Company or Sesame Street, right? And there were like little shorts, right? And I was always like, wow, that's pretty cool. But it really started in San Francisco at Fisherman's Wharf. I remember um, my 
parents had some friends that were stationed at the Presidio there and we went to, you know, visit them, right? One summer and I was a little kid and uh, they took off to go get some clam chowder and sourdough bread and and there was a street performer there. He was a mine. Mm-hmm. He had the whole, like, you know, mine makeup on. And I just stood in front of him and just like watched him for like 20 minutes. And in that course of 20 minutes, he's performing directly for me because there was really nobody else, you know, around him. And in that course of 20 minutes, he made me laugh. He made me sad. He almost made me cry. And as a kid, I was like, man, this is a superpower. Like, how does he do that? And he didn't say one word, right? I think he made some like weird animals with a balloon. And I was like, wow, I went through just an array of emotions. I was like, how does somebody do that? You know, something that was amazing for me, right? And it was, it was actually better than like a sports hero ducking a basketball or a baseball. Because I was like, there's such a interesting connection that we all of a sudden have with no words, right? And then Mm -hmm. the idea of like being a street performer or some type of entertainer was like stuck there, right? And then, you know, as kids, I don't know if they do this now in elementary school, but they would have these like guest performers come in, right? And so everybody would be in the assembly hall or at the cafeteria. Someone would show up and, you know, it'd be like, just say no to drugs type of message or something like that, right? And I remember there was another performer that came in and he didn't say one word. He just started, you know, using his body and these props. And I was like cracking up and I was like, you know, sad all of a sudden. And there was something that, you know, there was a message conveyed to me. It's like, yeah, okay, don't do drugs. But then I went on this like wonderful, connective human experience with another person just by watching him, right? And I remember like, Right after he was finished, I was, you know, mimicking him and like pretending like I was like Spider-Man and doing all these things. And then all the cool kids, there were the kids that could afford like Polo and Ralph Lauren that had their collars up and they're like looking at me going, you're such a dork, you dweeb, right? <laughs> and I remember I was on the floor like pretending and then, but it was okay. I was like, well, yeah, if he's a dork too, then then I'm I'm okay. Then that's cool. Like usually it would end up in a fight, but I just kind of looked at him. I was like, I don't care. That was the moment. Yeah. 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 That was the moment. Yeah. A lot of what you've done surrounds cars. I don't know how to pivot directly from that, but like, so there was miming and there was Paul Lim and there was feeling lonely and seeing movies. When in your life did you start to become interested in cars? I think there was, it was, it was also in Georgia. I think I was like 12 or 13. My, my home life was like super strict. Like my stepdad was, you know, he's a military guy and he, he, he was going to make a, he was going to make something out of me. Right. Were you an only child too, by the way? No, no, no. I have a sister. I, okay. I have a, she's five years younger than me. And so she, yeah, she's a baby. Like when you're a kid, yeah, like, you know, yeah. five year, for that five year gap, she's, she's just tagging along all the time. Right. But, you know, my stepdad was extremely, extremely hard on me. So I hated being home, right? I just, you know, I, I wouldn't say like, you know, we had the, like the TV family. It was like, it was about survival. And, you know, there's every, every day is like, you know, serious business. And there was no conversations at our dinner table. We didn't talk about like, how was your day? Or, 
you know, let's talk about film and art. And it was just like, eat and get up and go, go do your homework, right. get, mm-hmm. get out of here. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, I, you know, I would wander around the neighborhood and there was a, a couple that lived alone. They were much older and, and the gentleman had fought in the Korean War. And nights, you know, when I was like totally sad and like scared to be home, I would, I would end up somehow in front of his house, just like walking back and forth. And eventually led me into his garage because, you know, he always had the garage door open and you'd have Beach Boys off on the radio, you know, yeah. cassette tape or eight track, whatever he had. And, and I remember he had, he'd always wear these like white t-shirts and he had his like cigarettes rolled up here and they were like camel, like non-filter, right? And <laughs> he had his hair, he had gray hair, but he had it like slicked back with pomade or grease or whatever they put in there at the time. And it was like, and he had a little comb in the back of his blue jeans. And he was restoring his old Chevy Impala convertible. It was like a cream white color with red interior. It was a SS, which made super sport and all these things. Like I didn't know, like, I didn't know what is this old man car? What is he doing? And eventually he just let me hang out in his garage. And he never asked me questions of like, hey, what's going on at all? I think that's, he's old school. So, you know, that's somebody else's business, but he didn't have kids. So he just let me hang out. And I I would, I go through all the magazines and stuff and I would go through the catalogs. I would ask him all these dumb questions. Like, what does SS mean? Why are you putting red interior? Should be black. And he's like, well, you know, from the factory, this is how the car came and, I'm trying to make it, you know, OEM. It's like, I go, what does that mean? It's like what it looked like originally from the factory. And I go, well, why would you do that? You got to make it cooler, like paint it red and, you know, make flames come out of it and put like lightning bolts. And he's like, no, 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 no. You know, he was a caretaker of history, Mm -hmm. you know, and since he was retired, like he wanted to take his time and rebuild this piece of junk car back to its original glory. And originally, I didn't understand initially, like, why would you do something like that? But that's where the love affair for restoration and being a caretaker of a car came from, and, mm-hmm. you know, and appreciating that time in the garage and, you know, the sound of, you know, Beach Boy music and, you know, the smell of Camel cigarettes. And it was, his garage was nothing fancy. It was just like a two car garage and a little three bedroom house and. But, you know, I remember the, like the wood frames and the oil cans and, you know, and we just spent time together and there was nothing, yeah. you know, he wasn't giving me life lessons, but he, in actuality, he was, you know, he was like the, his patience and his approach to building this car back to its glory. And you could see how much he loved this car. Right. And mm-hmm. car, you know, he's gone now, but you know, I'm sure the car's still around somewhere because mm-hmm. every detail, every screw, I mean, you can order like factory correct bolts and nuts from mm-hmm. the factory. Right. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and do you really have to do that? No. I mean, no one's going to see that stuff, but for him, all of this stuff was important. And it's like, I, even to this day, I can tell a lot about a person just by looking at their car. And especially even builders, like, you know, people that have, you know, race cars or cars that they build. As soon as I look at all the details, you can tell probably what their underwear drawer looks like or their if their checkbook <laughs> is balanced, right? Yeah. yeah. 
and what their ethos in life is, is because if you're just worried about the stuff that people can see mm. and you don't care about the stuff under the hood or under the carpet, mm-hmm. it probably is an extension of who they are as well. And this gentleman really kind of instilled these kind of, you know, lessons in, in my life as a child. But I didn't realize it until you got, I got older, you know, and that love affair for cars is really there. I'm not, I think because, you know, the Fast and Furious movies, people think like, you know, I just, you know, I want to go fast and drift around and, you know, I'm into like cool looking cars. I really don't care about that stuff. Yeah, yeah. I, I do love cars because they only certain cars. Like it has to have a story of like, why? What does that mean to you? Mm-hmm. Who is the previous owner? Yeah. And then if I could resurrect it and create something that is everlasting in that way and that actually has an ethos, right? Has a story, has a name, mm-hmm. has a purpose why we needed to like bring that car back to life. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm into, you know? Well, that's, I mean, Sung, that was, you know, when I first met you, I think I kind of told you, I'm not necessarily a fanboy, but I'm a fan of kind of your approach, be it the storytelling aspect, but even just this kind of thoughtfulness. And that's where I was like, I want more of that. You know, I was always asking, I was like, hey, how can I convince you to do more of that with what you put out there in kind of long form? So, I mean, we kind of have to, I want to pivot to your latest work. Like you have, and that's why I was excited for a mutual friend, Brian, to reach back out. You've got two pretty significant, I would argue, personal projects that are dropping in the same time this coming week, right? You have this new podcast, Car Stories with iHeart, and then you have your new independent film, Shaky Shivers. And Really quick, like for listeners, like the podcast Car Stories is relaunching, obviously, off an area you've always been passionate about. Yes, you're a gearhead, but you're an observer of the human condition, the human story, the the culture that we have and what you can learn from someone. But then the film, Shaky Shivers, is your directorial debut. And, you know, from what we can tell, it's almost a love letter to those VHS films that you grew up on. So, I mean, I, I don't know. I'm on, I, I don't know which direction to go and which to talk about first. Maybe... Can we talk about the film first? Like what led you to the project? How long have you wanted to be a director? Well, directing is something that I knew that I wanted to do since I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Like when I saw Goonies by Steven Spielberg, I said, I want to do something like this. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to make stories that inspire kids to go in the woods and hang out with their buddies and, and look for treasures that may or may not exist, right? So I knew as a kid, I was like, yeah, directing is something I'd love to do. But I didn't go to film school. I started as an actor because I guess I needed like validation from the world, you know, and I think acting in front of the camera, the idea or the concept of being famous, it's like, okay, now validated by humans, right? So I think I needed to get older and get that thing out of my system, right? To go, I don't need really validation from people anymore. I don't care. I actually don't care what people think. And that just comes with age, right? And also you you have to assemble those tools that's necessary in your Mm -hmm. toolbox to be a director, not on just like a personal growth, you know, side of it, but the technical side of being a director, it's not, you don't just like pick up a camera and start shooting. It doesn't work like that. So you know, being active for 30 years and I like really just keeping my eyes open and really listening and, and slowly assembling that toolbox, I felt like, okay, maybe my, you know, mid to late forties, I'll be able to do that. Maybe like I'll be less anxious and it'll be less about me. Right. And once I started hitting my, you know, mid forties, I was like, okay, I got to direct something. And 
I'm, you know, a child of the Sundance Film Festival movies, right? So I had, you know, multiple films there. And well, that's where, I mean, isn't that where Better Luck Tomorrow kind of broke out? It was. Because of premiering, yeah. but like the, the critics is saying the things they shouldn't have said. And I think it was like Roger Ebert who like jumped in and was a total fucking mensch, yeah. you know, like back then. Yeah, yeah. But if it wasn't for Roger Ebert, there would definitely, I don't think there'd be a harm in the Fast and Furious movies. Yeah. He stood up for us and really campaigned. And supported us. You know. This is not what Asians, Asians don't have to fit into the mold of the, the model minority. Yeah. I mean, I can give you the, I mean, and for the listeners, just to give you context of what you're talking about is when we had Better Luck Tomorrow at Sundance Film Festival. First of all, I had no idea what Sundance Film Festival was. Like I remember Justin, the director's like, hey, you know, we're applying to the Sundance Film Festival. And I was like, what's that? why are we going to go dancing? Like, well, I, I don't understand. He's like, he's like, no, no, it's a, it's a festival where you go and try to sell the movie. And I was like, well, who's going to buy this movie? I don't understand. He's like, you just need to come, just come to this festival. Right. right. I was like, I can't come, man. I have no money. Like I can't afford all that. Like, what are, you, are you crazy? You know how much a plane ticket? Why, why, why am I going to go to, where am I going? Like, I was like, why would I go there? Like you're out of your mind. Like, why is a film festival at, in the snow? Like, it makes no sense. Anyway. Right, like, right. Like, just show up. And uh, we were in competition. So I, I think, you know, at the Sundance, 16 to like 20-ish uh, films are actually in the competition segment. And that's where you want to be, right? So we were one of those films. And then you have the three screenings. And I remember the first screening, you know, was at the Eccles. That's where you premiere. And I think it was like, 1,500 people. It was like the wow. biggest thing that I've ever witnessed yeah. you know, in any project I've been in. And I remember after the screening, everyone just like walked out. And you, know, you go up and you, there's like a Q&A and nobody asked any questions. It's just like, okay, humdrum, I guess mm-hmm. that's it. Right. And then, then we had a screening at the library, which is a much smaller venue. And after the screening, I, you know, we weren't expecting anything. We're like, yeah, this... No one cares about us. And this journalist gets up and he's like, I have a question. Okay. And we're thinking, it's like, yeah, how long did it take? Or, you know, like, what did you shoot on? Right. Some, right. some standard boring question. And he goes, hey, so just, I just want to let you guys know. It's like, obviously, Justin Lin, you went to film school and you know how to make a movie and these actors know how to act. And that's all great. But how dare you? How dare you represent your people this way? Huh. It's such a negative portrayal of Asians and Asian Americans. It's like, you should never make movies again. How dare you do this? Right. And, and we're like, uh oh, they're going to start throwing stuff at us. Like, we're <laughs> like, oh my God, this guy is so angry. Right. He's right. so pissed off. And then all of a sudden, it's like Moses parting the seas. And Ebert gets up, gets up on his chair. And everyone's like, hey, be quiet, guys. Hey, Zebra, <laughs> what's Roger? Roger, go ahead. Go ahead, Roger. See what you got to say. And I'm thinking, oh, he's going to start yelling at us too or something. And he, and he said something in the like of forever Native Americans have had to always portray this spear chucking like medicine man in Hollywood films and to Americans, right? Because it makes them comfortable, right? Mm. And yep. these kids have only one responsibility and it's to make a good movie. And that's what they did. If they were bunch of white kids that made this film, you wouldn't have a problem with it. But you don't like the fact that you think that 
Asians or Asian Americans are these model minorities, right? And mm-hmm. right. all of a sudden they fuck with your head going, wait, they're actually three-dimensional people and they actually might be like bad and they might be like running shit. Right. You know? right. And there's like, you know, they're actually calculating and they're actually out for revenge, all this stuff. It, you don't like that. You don't like this version of what you think, you know, these Asian yeah. kids are supposed to be. And all of a sudden, the journalist gets up and it's like, shut up. And they're literally screaming at each other. It was like almost like a riot, yeah. right? And we're like, what the hell is going on here? And then other pro better luck tomorrow, like journalists getting up is like, yeah, shame on you. Like you, you're a journalist. And it's like, you you feel like you have to pigeonhole people. And it's like, you're the you're the problem, man. It's, and that's what the spirit of Sundance No Festival is. And if you don't like it, get the fuck out of here. Wow. We're just screaming at each other. And that was the spark that we needed. It was a moment. It was a moment. Yeah. Not just for the movie, yeah. but just, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I mean, and then all of a sudden, the very next day, we're in the trades and stuff. And like, we're invited to parties all of a sudden, you know, and people <laughs> like, you know, we're on the shuttles and they're like, oh, it's those guys. It's right. the guys from Better Luck Tomorrow. And we're like, whoa, we're, hey, you know, people are like, hey, can you get a picture with you? You're like, me? What? What? <laughs> so that was the beginning of the Better Luck Tomorrow journey. You know, that was like our likely do the right thing kind of moment, I think, especially for, you know, young Asian Americans that were looking for themselves on screen, right? And so that was the beginning of like emails and stuff. So we did this whole tour around America to every university, to every Asian student association group. So yeah, 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 it was, it was pretty awesome to like be a part of that journey, right? And, and then, you know, even meeting like, you know, recently, like I like was talking to John Chu, who directed Crazy Rich Asians. And he said, you know, I was at that screening. Yeah. And he goes, and that's what inspired me. He, I think so he was cool. in high school. I think he was in high school when yeah. that movie came out for Animal. I think it inspired me to be a filmmaker. So you never know. And it's like to be a part of like history, that's pretty cool. You know what I mean? And that was really cool, like experience. So amazing. Yeah. I have to say, this is one of the best stories I've heard ever. So thank you for sharing that. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, actually a short documentary. Mm-hmm. About that moment? Yeah. Because we had a... Really? That's all I know about it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We, we had a student from UCLA follow us around with a video camera. And he documented... Oh, cool. From production all the way to us selling the movie to MTV Films Paramount. I'm going to watch it. Raman, you can find the, the link and we'll put it in the show notes too. Yeah. yeah, BLT Genesis is what it's called. It's by okay. actually a filmmaker named Evan Leong who did the uh, Insanity. Oh, we know well. We know him. Yeah, we've talked to yeah, him. Yeah, yeah, we had him because when Snakehead yeah, came yeah. out, that's that's when we met him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, Director well, Snakehead. That's the other thing about you. It's just like your group of friends is so cool. Like Evan and Justin, because like you guys have kind of been like, and even Brian, our, our mutual friend Brian, like you guys have just been like fucking around, trying stuff thoughtfully taking notes, trying shit out and just applying the lesson to the next one. That That's what I've always admired about this like little crew that you kind of roll with. So, And it always yeah. feels, it always seems like when I hear it from you guys that it was almost accidental, right? Like even as you're like, I don't even know what Sundance is and you like ended up there. He was like, just show up, man. Like just come. And then it was like this amazing pivotal moment in history. Like you guys find 
or it seems like you guys find a way to have magic happen. And part of me is like, are these guys just like fabricating this? Like, like, did you guys get into a room and like, you know, figure all that out? Because it just seems too, it's just amazing. You guys are like pioneering and at the forefront of so many things. It's very, very cool. Yeah, I mean, look, we we really didn't know what we're doing. And we still don't because there's no yeah. there's no manual. It's, it's, a, it's Asian forest gump. It's Asian forest gump. Right. We're just there when it happens. <laughs> yeah, you're yeah. always in the right place at the right time. Yeah. I, it's so great. Yeah, and I think I think if you're just sincere about it, you know, it's like yeah, everybody was there for the right reasons, you know. Right. And I see the difference between because I've been part of like you know several films that went to Sundance, and you know, I always thought like when I would go back to Sundance, it would be just like Better Luck Tomorrow. But then mm. you know, on my second return, I realized, oh no, there's a whole business to it. There is this calculation. There is this strategy right. behind show business part of it. And that's why I remember our producer's rep, Jeff Dowd, who the big Lebowski uh, is based on, right? The mm. Coen Brothers movie. And I remember, you know, he's a veteran. He sells all these like, you know, independent movies and everyone knows Jeff Dowd. And I remember we we're walking to like after the whole Roger Ebert thing, he's like, so do you know that the probability of this ever happening again, right? You having this experience, it will be never. He goes, because this is the first time I have ever experienced it. And I'm like, nah, nah, it's always going to be like this. And the second and third time I went to Sundance, it was nothing like this. Everything was like this calculation, right. it was like plan. And it felt very insincere, you know, and mm-hmm. there's publicists and they're talking, you know, there's all these talking points. And even like me talking about the movie at times or these other movies, I felt like I had to come up with the right answer. And then the movies never really worked, right? Where right. like tomorrow, there's nothing that I had to like think about because it was all true, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's a lesson that I take away from, you know, as I get older and as a filmmaker too, and in life is that if you have to overthink and you have to calculate your answer, even if it's not the right answer, if it's not based in truth, then it's most likely not going to Right. And you can't fabricate people loving a film, right? You can't do that. Yeah. yeah. It's got to be authentic in that way. Yeah. Yeah. So for Shaky Shivers, what led you to this film? What inspired that and how did you come to the project? I was looking for that feature to direct. Mm-hmm. And I thought I was going to make do some coming of age drama with some tear jerking moments. And we shot this movie during the pandemic and everybody was going through, you know, a dark time, man. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I just said, hey, man, life's too short. I, w- I want to laugh. Like, I would love to go and laugh and make a movie. And and somehow Shaky Shivers fell on my lap because my long-term writing partner, Aaron Strongroni, we've been writing projects together for the past 15 years. And he's a big, big horror right and him and his buddy Hmm. Andy McAllister they wrote Shaky Shivers on their own because of two things one is that they did this documentary about this gentleman Gabe Bartalis who actually eventually made all our creatures for Shaky Shivers practically you know wow and they fell in love with them you know they're like this guy's spirit is just like amazing his love affair and his passion for what he does is inspiring so they wanted to like make a film and originally Shaky Shivers was supposed to be like a short film. It's like to give homage to these type of people like Gabe Bartalis, this dying 
craft in Hollywood being replaced by technology. And then second, Andy, one of the writers at that time had a eight or nine-year-old daughter that, you know, he wanted to share this level of practical effects with her, but they didn't want to scare the bejesus out of her, right? So, yeah. so they wrote this movie about these two girls, these two illustrators on this journey. And at the end, you know, what I really resonated to and used as my North Star in the film was, you know, it's this journey of these two like outsiders and these like losers in town. But at the end of the film, you know, they realize it's okay to be comfortable in your skin. You don't have to be the most popular person in school. And as long as you have that one partner in crime, you're pretty good, man. And I was like, I love that story. I love that story. And I love that the characters are two females, right? And I'm mm-hmm. like, I love this. I love it. And somehow, you know, we were able to get enough money to go and do the movie. And because of the pandemic, we're able to get like the location of the Girl Scouts camp. It was a old, it was a Girl Scouts camp that had to close down because of the pandemic. So mm-hmm. we're able to do that. And I, I didn't think like a horror comedy would be my first movie, right? And even after it was all done, like I questioned it and I was like, man, did I make a mistake? Because I showed my agents, I remember I had a private screening for my agents and my like publicists, like my whole team, like right. attorneys and stuff. And they were so excited. They're like, oh, Stung directed his first movie. This is going to like go to Sundance. It's going to like, you know, that's, that's his pedigree and all that. And then I remember after the film, they had nothing to say. They were like, okay, well, have a good night. We're out of here. So they never talk about the movie ever, right? Ever. They don't want you on this podcast right now. Yeah, yeah. Just They do not care. They're like almost running away from it. And I was like, that's so like, funny. What is, what is wrong with them? Is it me or what? Right. But like, I feel like this thing, I think traditional Hollywood can't do anything with it. Right. Mm-hmm. Doesn't fit in a box. Yeah. And it, it doesn't tick off the, you know, the Sundance box. It's not that movie. Yeah. Is, is there some social like commentary they can attach to it? There's not. It's just a fun, right. goofy comedy. Right. And they're like, the dude from Fast and Furious, like directed a movie about two girls, right? And, you know, monsters. Like, what is that, right? What is that, right? Right. And it's right. so wholesome. The movie is like so wholesome, right? So so who, who do you think the film is for? What types of audiences do you think would enjoy this the most? Well, I kept saying when we were making the film, I said, you know, this is a movie for parents that love, love, practical effects, right? In horror movies, right? Yep. But have kids. Right. But have kids. And they don't want to like, you know, can't go watch Conjuring with your eight-year-old daughter, right? It does, you know. Right. So on a Sunday evening to have like family time and to be able to share, you know, the love affair for like, you know, practical monster makeup effects, but then have a great message, right? Especially if you have daughters, it's like, what a great movie to be able to watch with, you know, your parents, right? That's, who this movie is for. And I kept saying this, you know, nobody listened to me, but then what's beautiful about the movie coming out on the 21st is that our distributors, Cineverse, the people that have been supporting us, like I'm in shock. Like, mm-hmm. you know, when I do press for like Fast and Furious, a lot of times the people asking the questions, I know they don't care. Mm-hmm. Right. They don't care about the movie. They actually don't care about what I, I'm not saying everyone. There are like mm-hmm. people that actually love the franchise, but a lot of people are just going through the motions. It's so, the yeah, job. It's, it's the job. Yeah. 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 Right. And right. I could say anything. They're not listening to me anyway, because they 
probably aren't even going to watch the film. Right. You know, so. Yeah. Um, but they get to come to the red carpet and saw this Hollywood bling, 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 right? With shaky shivers, we have none of that, right? And so anyone that is coming to do like ask me questions or help us with the press aspect yeah. or the promotional aspect, mm -hmm. they love the movie and they love the genre, right? So yeah. it's, it's a different conversation. Like right away, I'm like, wow, it's like, this is my tribe. Like, right. you know, we're, yeah. we're, we're, the, we're the misfits, but we speak the same language. And you found your people, Sung. You found your yeah. people. It's been so refreshing. And it, it's also, it's been great for me as a filmmaker to go, hey man, you know, you made this movie for the right reason. And, you know, maybe the status quo is rejecting you, but you will find your, your, your tribe, your folks, right? Yeah. Because it's, it's, it's art, right? And you eventually... Yeah. Somebody will come, right? And the fact that, mm, yeah, guys, even though we're in the theater for like one day, but we're in 700 theaters, right? The fact that this movie yeah. is going to be at Universal City Walk, right? That's so cool. I used to go to movies all the time there when I lived in LA. Yeah, it's so cool. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. And this one day thing, is that intentional or is that just kind of the way it worked out? Why? Why only one day? Why only September 21st? Because it... You know, it costs money to have a movie in the show. <laughs> yeah. <on there>. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, you never know. Like, you never know if if all of a sudden, you know, on the 21st, there's enough people that go and watch it theatrically. Mm -hmm. I don't yeah. think they're going to keep it in 700 theaters, but right. it's a good, you know, resource to see. It's like what markets and what areas can they keep it in? So even if it ends up in like, you know, 50 theaters later, you know, the week after and, and it's in there for like a couple of months. I mean, that's a huge win. The fact that right. movies today right. are actually in a theater, that's a big win within itself, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I got to pivot to this other project. So that, that's what's so cool. And I found out both of your projects were coming out at the same time. So you've got another podcast come out. You know, this is something I chased you on about almost like two years ago because you used to have another podcast, which was pretty interesting, but obviously had this opportunity to be so much more. So now you're launching Car Stories. What is that? I kind of know now the soul based on the story you said earlier about your, your old neighbor. But why did you want to chase this and go deeper beyond gearheads? So Car Stories, the podcast yeah. that's coming out also on the 21st, was really also because of you, Robin. I was almost apologizing to you before we started yeah. recording. I'm like, what? I'm sorry I got you into this. And had to go get my day job back. <laughs> yeah. But it's, you know, I, I, I have extreme gratitude to you because, you know, if you hadn't been pressing me, you know, I definitely wouldn't have continued the podcast, right? Mm -hmm. But initially, I started this podcast in my garage because I had just have simple questions in life, you know, it's like, mm -hmm. and through, you know, my journey in the car community, I realized that, hey, I met some and I know some amazing human beings, mm -hmm. right? And what, aside from the car stuff, you know, I would sit down with these folks and go, hey, you know, how, how do you deal with like, you know, your marriage? How do you be a better husband? Mm -hmm. How are you like a better son to your mother? And how do you deal with death? How do you deal with these things as you're getting older? And I, I, I started to realize it's like, I have all these questions and I, I need mentors in my life. I need to find these answers. So that was the ethos of why I 
even wanted to have these conversations with people, right? Like I, didn't, I wasn't necessarily like interested in like what cars they had or how fast they went or like what motor they put in there. It's like that we could do like, you know, away from the microphone. But I was like, hey, it's a great way to, you know, share this knowledge as well. So mm-hmm. I experimented in the garage and we tried. And I think that's how you even discovered it, right? That, yeah, yeah. And when you're doing it and even after you start releasing it, like there's a lot of like self-doubt going, what was I doing? I can't even talk, right? Yeah, sure. And I deal with that every week. Yeah, yeah. But you know, a good podcast is a totally different muscle. Like people think you just like put a microphone and start talking. No, no, no. There's structure to it. There, uh-huh. people like there that are great at podcasting. It's like it's a talent within itself. So I feel like you know, let's try, right? And it, would, you know, it was during the pandemic, so it's like you know, I have time. And then you came along, and you're like, hey, maybe there's like you know a bigger audience you can reach. And you know, I think you were talking to iHeart and somehow things started happening, right? And then I went and like recorded a whole bunch of stuff and I hated it all. I was (laughs) like, I don't, I'm like, I I actually, I told everybody, I was like, I glad I never signed a contract because I'm going to just, I'm walking away, right? I don't, I don't, like, I don't, I don't want to do this anymore because I couldn't figure it out, right? And I felt like, especially on a bigger stage or a bigger platform, like our iHeart, there was something I wanted to say, but I just couldn't extract it. Like I mm. just couldn't do it properly. And yeah. I was just about to give up and Brian or some on my management company had, you know, recommended this young woman, Amelia Hartford. She's like in the car space. And the, you got a co-host. You need a co-host, right? Yeah. yeah you kept saying that, right? And I, and I tried different co-hosts and do it. It just wouldn't work, man. Like it's a chemistry thing. It's a chemistry thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And we're, we're it would be like really good off, you know, away from the microphone. The micro started like the co-hosts that I tried were like they're, they're talking about nonsense. Like you're like, what? What are you talking about? Like right. This it's not the focus of this podcast. And so I started giving up. And then Amelia came in, and we realized like we met when she was a little, you know, girl. Right when she was a child, and her father was a producer, and he cast me in one of my early, early movies. This is way before the Fast Furious stuff, and um, he actually committed suicide. Like wow, right after the movie was finished, right, and and this disrupted her whole life. They moved away from LA, and that's why she got into the car space to also find mentors and like you know father figures, if you will, and it basically saved her life. You know what I mean? They, they getting into cars and being in the garage and meeting people that gave her support that she needed. And I feel like, oh, we have something here. And then the conversation was just really lovely. And I was like, mm-hmm. maybe if I ask her, if she would be willing to be a co-host, maybe this can continue. So, you know, and I called her right after and I was like, hey, instead of releasing your episode, how about we just start all over? That's great. And we go into this as partners, right? And and let's go and find these answers. And, you know, it's easy to talk about cars with her because she knows cars, she loves cars. But then they try to get extracting those human lessons, right? It's like, right. you know, and I think we have something. I, I really do. I mean, you know, the guests come in and they, I think because it's called Car Story, they think they're going to talk about cars. And, uh-huh. You know, maybe that's a 30 second conversation. And then we go into these like, you know, amazing stories that we can share with the audience and hopefully 
after people listen to it, they can walk away with something that, yeah, you know. Yeah. It's a way in. It's a way in, but it can't be the only way, right? Yeah, yeah. I, and I was uh, I was reading like the press release when Brian texted me that it's the show's finally coming out. And I was not surprised that he got John Oates of Hall and Oates. Oh, of course. Oh, yeah. yeah well. He's like, the, he is their biggest fan. Yeah. For sure. He's super fan. He's super fan. Anyone that knows Brian knows that he loves Hall and Oates. It's just yeah. the two things go together. So, I mean, just kind of one kind of final question about the work. This kind of new phase that you're in, call it, I don't know, Sung Phase 3 of the of the Sung Cinematic Universe. Like, going beyond Han and, you know, like, had to hold myself back from talking about Star Wars the entire time we were talking two years ago. But like going beyond Han and Star Wars, with all these new projects, right? You jumping into directing, going deeper with the podcast work. How does like your family, your community, your tribe feel about this new phase? How are people reacting to it? Or are we at the beginning? Like you don't know yet. What do you mean by that? Like what, like my wife or my friends? Um, yeah. I mean, you know, when I started podcasting, my wife kind of rolled her eyes in a special way and was supportive, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, but there's that, like, it's, you have a lot of layers to you. That's, that's kind of probably why I think a lot of people are drawn to you, but this is kind of a very new side of you that people are going to start to see publicly. Like what's the pickup then? So far, how are people feeling about it? I don't know. I, I don't think anyone feels anything about it. Like, I, I don't, I don't know if anyone even cares. I mean, <laughs> you care you care because you're talking to me but I, I i think people in my life do not care at all i think all they care about is like you know am i happy yeah you know do i have something to do that's gonna fulfill you know it's a sheet that needs to be like expressive and artistic but you know no one no one asks me like you know i maybe if you Maybe I guess people know that, you know, my friends or so-called friends, they, they know that, you know, I have a movie coming out, but nobody's asking me to, no one's telling me they're going to go watch it. Right. And I don't expect that either. Like yeah, I yeah. actually yeah. don't care. Right. I, I don't think that's a definition. It's like, they don't owe me anything. You right. Know what I mean? So, right. But my wife, all she cares about is that, you know, I wake up and I'm not going into this like dark hole of hopelessness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And, and, yeah. And she's, she's excited for me because I don't think she's listened to or ever will, will even listen to my, my wife to this day. I don't know about your husband, Sharon, but she's like, I don't need to listen to your podcast. I hear you all day long. But if you're happy with it, you and Sharon yeah. are, or you and Ryan or you and Drew are happy or Rajiv, you keep, you do you. That's kind of her point of view on this sort. Exactly. Right. And, and that's all she worries about is that. She knows, she see me in my darkest, you know, hour where like I go, I have no hope. Like I, mm. I don't know if there's a future for me in Hollywood, in the movies. And, you know, she's proud and excited that I forge it ahead. And I, I, I've been very proactive about taking the opportunities opposed to like waiting for a phone call that's never going to happen, you know? And, and I think that's the beauty of like the film and the podcast is that. Nobody called me and said, "Hey, you want to direct the movie?" So you have to manifest all this stuff yourself, mm-hmm. right? And, right. And if I'm just doing it for commercial success or for accolades or for my friends to call me and go, "Hey, it's awesome what you're doing," right? And that's not going to last. So I actually don't care. I mean, like, right. none of my friends could come and support it. Doesn't matter because I didn't do it for them anyway. You know what I mean, so yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good. Well, 
we're excited. I'm excited to see this new phase of you. And I think that um, I feel like if your friends do listen, they'll probably see a side of you or hear a side of you that they just don't know already. That's my assumption. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't think they'll listen. Plus, I don't have a lot of friends, guys. <laughs> like, I, I, I do not. You get older and you have less and less people that you really call your friends. I know a lot of people. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But huh? right. I doubt right, even right. those people will listen. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see. Watch like like when Remen, when he wins like podcast of the year or something, we're gonna I'm gonna just, we'll take this moment and be like, remember you said <laughs> nobody No, listen. but his friends still won't listen. That's true. Dang. Oh, I guess that's the point. That's Every true. piece yeah. of press we way. get, like my friends are like, Are you guys, are you still doing that? Like yeah. what? Yeah, you're right. You're right. The same way that your wife just still doesn't listen to this podcast either. So funny. Yeah. So Sung, if we were to go back to Gainesville, to the arcade, maybe. And you saw yourself and you could tell your, yourself something, your past self something and give them some advice. What advice would you give them? I would say to my younger self, I would say, it's okay, kid. It's okay. It'll all work out. It's okay to be you. Yeah. Because it took me so many years to be okay with being me. You know, it's like, I think I'm just seeing the you know, the light at the end of the tunnel. It's like I lived my whole life questioning if I was okay, if I, mm. if I was good enough, right? And yeah, and that's something that I know as a kid or as a young man, that caused a lot of problems for me. And it caused a lot of like hesitation, causing a lot of drama that I didn't you know, need to deal with. It's like, just mm-hmm. keep on the course, just keep going, right? That's what I would say. I mean, it's simple as that. It's like, I think about all the nonsense, you know, that was in my head that prevented me from doing this and that, and even directing and questioning everything that I did as an actor, going, you know, you're not good enough. You don't know what you're doing. Why are you even trying to do this? It's like, it's okay. I mean, look at the world, guys. It's like, it's changed so much, right? you know, from better luck tomorrow to now. It's like, it's changed so much. The idea of having Asian representation in cinema today, it's still hard. Like, I mean, look, yeah. people go, oh, all these great opportunities. I go, I, I don't know what they're talking about. I have no opportunities in Hollywood still, right? But mm-hmm. the conversation is not like, well, what are you talking about? Like, why would we put an Asian person in this, right? Mm-hmm. Right, mm-hmm. so... That within itself, it's like, you know, people are desensitized to our face in media and entertainment. Mm-hmm. It's, it's okay now, right? I didn't think, there, you know, when I was younger, I was like, I questioned it. I was like, I don't know if it's possible, man. Like, I really don't know. I don't know. And, you know, and I'm in the business of no's and rejection. And, you know, you're never good enough, right? And there's always somebody better than you. And I just thought, you know, me being me was like, okay, you're not good enough, man. It's not going to happen. But, you know, you just keep going. You just keep, you just keep going and find sincerity in what you're doing and find like, look for that purpose. And this is all easy to say. Right. right? But it's, it's right. easy to say on the other side of it, right? Yeah. yeah. Very hard. Yeah. And it's still, it's still easy to say, but hard to do. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. I heard this like interview with Robert De Niro recently and he, he was saying, even when you're successful, stay calm because mm. he's seen it all. Right. When you think you're at the top, hey, stay calm because that thing can disappear just like that. Right. And when everything is gone to shit, just stay calm. Stay calm. Just stay calm. Yeah. Right. In startups, we call it the roller coaster. Like, you know, you can have 
in this course of a week or a day, you can have the biggest win and the, and you get punched in the gut instantly that same afternoon. Yeah, it's just, you got to be, it's hard. It's hard. It's easy to say. Yeah. But I think you kind of have to like ride the roller coaster a few times before you get used to it. Yeah. They have to fall off a few times. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you do. And then be willing to get back on the roller coaster again, right? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Well, Sung, like a roller coaster, we, we've covered a lot of territory, but Sharon, do you think Sung can handle the speed round? Can Sung handle the speed round? I almost feel like that's like a rhetorical question. Yes, Sung, I think you're, I think you're ready for speed round. Sung, are you ready for speed round? Yes, I am. Wrong answer. No one's ever <laughs> ready for speed round. <laughs> Sung, what is the uh, one thing about you that no one expects? Huh. That's, I, I don't have a speedy answer for that. Yes. But, then, but that nobody exactly. expects. Yep. I think most people think I, I don't smoke cigarettes, but I smoke. Do you roll up the camels in your sleeve? Is that what you do? No, no. I smoke American spirits, but I, I smoke way too much, especially these days. Kids who are listening at home, don't smoke. Yeah, don't do that. Yeah, bad, no. bad, bad, bad habit. <laughs> What is a book, a song, or a movie that isn't your own that you can relate to? Old Man in the Sea, Hemingway. Yeah, yeah, that's a great one. Fishing for something, right? And getting it and then losing it. <laughs> <laughs> like a roller coaster, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. What's your favorite mom dish? Mm. Um, it's this thing called John. It's like... Kajang, it's a green onion pancake. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Oh, she used to make, anytime I see her, she always makes that. Like, actually, she, she, that's the only thing she can't cook. Well, she's a horrible cook, but so she can cook that. <laughs> the worst. You let me know if you want me to edit that part out, son. I don't know if your mom's No, 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 no. Everybody knows like her. Because she was like the, the youngest child of like six yeah. children. So she never had to go. I mean, mm-hmm. her food is disgusting. I mean, it's like <laughs> the gross. It's like. Gross, man. I think it's, it's the first time we went into uh, that territory with this question. Yeah. <laughs> disgusting oh food. Like I don't I I I don't know what she thinks when she's making this food, but it's but the like, pancake's good. The onion pancake's yeah, the, good. The scallion, the scallion pancake. Yeah, yeah it's good. good. It's just it's just flour and green onion. So you, you can't really ruin it, you know what I mean? So yeah. What is your least favorite food? Least favorite food? Jeez. Oh, wagyu. Okay. You don't like Wagyu beef? What do you have against that? I hate Wagyu. Why? I, I get I get sick right away. I hate it. Mm. Do you eat reg- regular beef? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like ribeye is like, I can eat that all day. Like kaibi, I can eat all that. But beef for some reason, it's like, and actually when people, you know, when I go to Asia, because Wagyu is like, you know, expensive yep, yep. or delicacy. Right, right. I tell them, I go, hey, you know, I know you want to take me out to dinner, but please, no Wagyu. No Toro, no Wagyu. And, and they don't listen. Like nobody listens to me. Right. And right. then they, and they take me to like Wagyu restaurants. Like all they serve is like, I get furious. I get so angry. Wow. Cause it's a waste of money and a waste right. of food, right? Right. Like, right. like I can't, I can't eat it. So I hate Wagyu, hate it. So podcaster to podcaster, who's someone out there that you uh, still want to talk to on a podcast? Uh, there's so many, but I would love to sit down and talk to. Keanu Reeves. Yeah. Why and what would you ask him? I, I don't know if I would even ask him any questions. I would just like to stare at him. Oh. Yeah. There's something about his aura, you know, it's like, and I want to see if it's real. 
right? Like yeah. there's this like myth that Keanu Reeves is one of the kindest, you know, souls in our business. And, you know, I want to find out like, where does that ethos come from? Like how, how do you stay that way? How, how are you that person? Or is it a bunch of bullshit and it's like, you know, PR and media, like, you know, hyping. Like, I want to meet that hero, right? To see if yeah. it is real. You did, you, did you ever see the movie? Um, to me, it wasn't the antithesis, but when Crazy Rich Asians came out, I thought the better Asian American movie of the year was Always Be My Maybe. Did you see that on Netflix? Yeah. Where Keanu plays a role in it. And it's it kind of like pierces the veil. He's, he's playing the character, to be clear, of himself. But yeah. One of my favorite yeah. parts of that. Yeah. He's got that mime energy too. There's something about Keanu that's, he seems like that same, he has that same mime ability, like that, almost like that magic ability to emotionally connect in that way. Yeah. Yeah. Because he resonates kindness and humility, right? And Right. And many times, like, you know, you meet your heroes and you're so disappointed, man. You know, and you need to meet people like him to go, you know, how do I continue? Like, how do I also contribute that way? Because look, you see him on screen and that's great, but then it, he really, you know, makes an impact when people see him in person and meet him in person. And that's something that, right. yeah, I, I hear about all the time. I want to know where that comes from and, you know, how he maintains that, right? Yeah. Last question. What does being a modern minority mean for you? Well, I guess it, I, I think it would just be, it doesn't matter what color you are, where you come from, just be okay with yourself today in today's world, right? Because mm -hmm. everything, no matter how different you are, I think there's enough minorities in this world that now have all kind of created this tribe of supporting one another. And that is what a modern minority is, is mm -hmm. that it doesn't matter, you know, sexuality, religion, ethnicity, social class, like, you know, everyone can say that they're a minority in some degree, right? Mm -hmm. And it's it's okay. It's okay to be that. So I guess that's how I describe it. Nice. Sung, I just, um, again, for the longest time, I think when we first met, I told you, just been an admirer of your approach. It's the kind of things you've said about Keanu kind of has kind of always been that perception of, of you. And I just appreciate not just, you know, reaching back out and finding time to talk, but the fact that you're just trying new things and you're kind of putting putting it out there, but you're doing it thoughtfully kind of with, with your kind of intentionality. So thanks for making the time to talk to us today. Well, thanks for having me, guys. It's been a real pleasure. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review, and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us. Hi, mom, at modmypod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you. That's it for now. I've been Raman Segal. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon. happening daily. 
We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m. and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.